T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good morning and welcome to... The Morning Briefing for Thursday, August 30th, 2018. Super producer JQ's here sitting in the driver's seat because host Eric Dane is at a uh, kindergarten open house with his little guy. And that's, if that's not the most adorable thing you've ever seen, well, I don't know what is. So you're stuck with me for today. So today we have got a fantastic show coming up. Of course, it is uh, Thursday, which means we will speak with AMVETS Executive Director Joe Schinelli. But before that, Eric had the chance to sit down with Lydia Watts. She is the CEO of SWAN, the Service Women Actions Network. And she has a big announcement coming up about their upcoming conference. So make sure you stick around. It's going to be a fantastic show. And hey, hey, make sure you follow us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. And check out the website, ConnectingVets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran-related. Following us on social media will give you the opportunity to know the latest and greatest things. Exactly when things pop off, you'll know because we stay on top of that because we are the veteran community. Every single person at ConnectingVets.com knows what it's like to put that uniform on and take it off for the last time. So we stay on top of the veteran sphere because we are the veteran sphere, which helps you the veteran sphere. It's that whole, you know, Lion King circle of life thing. Anyway, let's check out what's going on on ConnectingVets.com. Lots of really cool stuff. If you go there now, you're going to see some fantastic stories. Uh, you'll see a Hack the VA from our own Jonathan Copanger, who will tell you how to get some parenting help from the VA. That's really cool. There's a story about uh, student debt loan forgiveness for disabled veterans. Uh, there's a story about how you can honor former uh, passed away Senator John McCain by wearing his POW bracelet. But something I want to talk about, have you ever wanted, oh, I don't know, uh, free money? I mean, free money is always a good thing. And my dad always taught me never turn down free food unless it's coming from a stranger in a van. And even then, just make sure you see the puppy first. Wow, that was bad. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> anyway, how would you like to get free money from the VA? A story from our own Jonathan Copanger on ConnectingVets.com. Are you receiving all your VA benefits? Not all of VA's compensation payments are based on service-connected conditions. Here are five that you may not know about. A clothing allowance. If your clothing is damaged by a prosthetic device, wearable orthopedic appliances, or by a prescribed medication that you use on your skin, this allowance is for you. The eligibility requirements are you must be a veteran who uses either of the following. A prosthetic or orthopedic appliance, such as a wheelchair or crutches, due to a service-connected disability or medication prescribed by a physician for a service-connected condition that causes permanent stains or damage to outer garments. 
The payment, uh, the current table rate is current rate table is available on connectinvest.com. You may receive this as a one-time payment or as a yearly allowance for reimbursement. To receive the annual payment, you must establish eligibility by August 1st for the year that you are claiming payment. Payments are distributed between September 1st and October 31st. If you haven't received payment by October 31st, you should contact your local prosthetic representative. Applications are collected throughout the year and held until the August 1st closing date. To apply, you use VA Form 10-8678. Submit the form to the prosthetic representative at your VA medical center. If you have submitted a disability compensation claim, you must do so before filing the clothing allowance. Here's something interesting. Pre-stabilization ratings. This is, let's see what this is. This is a temporary initial rating given to veterans who are recently separated from service and have an unstable disability. They are graded either at 50 or 100% depending on the severity of the disability. Pre-stabilization ratings continue for a 12-month period following discharge from service. Here are the eligibility requirements. <clears throat> you must be a veteran and separated from military service within unstable, significantly disabling, significantly disabling service-connected disability at the time of separation. To apply, you apply online using e-benefits or work with an accredited representative or agent or go to a VA regional office and have a VA employee help. Go to the VA's How to Apply page for tips on making sure your claim is ready to be processed. Hello, Thomas Logan. Good morning to you too, sir. I hope you're having a fantastic one. Uh, let's see what else we got on here. Uh, okay, Title 38 USC 1151 claims. This allows the VA to pay compensation for death disabilities, quote, as if service-connected. These are not service-connected issues. The benefit may be paid for injuries incurred or aggravated while receiving VA-sponsored medical treatment or while participating in vocational rehabilitation under 38 U.S. Code Chapter 31 or when participating in compensated work therapy under 38 U.S. Code 1718. This is a bunch of word salad, man. Like, I'm having trouble pronouncing some of this stuff. Anyway, the eligibility requirements. You must be a veteran and have a disabling condition that's the result of or have been aggravated due to VA-sponsored medical treatment or training. To apply, you apply online using e-benefits, or work with an accredited representative or agent, or go to a VA regional office and have a VA employee help. Wow, this is a good one. <clears throat> Automobile allowance. This is a one-time payment that may be used to buy an automobile or other conveyance if you have certain service-connected disabilities. Both veterans and active duty may apply for this allowance. Some may also be eligible for adaptive equipment such as power steering, brakes, windows, seats, and special requirements to assist the eligible person in and out of the vehicle. Eligibility requirements. You must be on active duty or a veteran and the injury is service-connected. For the automobile grant, it is available for persons who have lost or have permanent loss of use of one or both feet, one or both hands, 
or permanent impairment of vision in either eye, severe burn injuries, or, and this is a big one, uh, ALS. I'm not going to try to pronounce what ALS stands for. (laughs) It's a lot of stuff. Uh, For the adaptive equipment, you must meet the requirements for the automobile grant or have immobility of the joint of one or both knees or hips that is recognized by VA as being service-connected. When purchasing a vehicle, this grant is paid directly to the seller of the vehicle. If purchasing adaptive equipment, the benefits is payable to either the seller or the veteran. The automobile grant is available only once during a person's lifetime. To apply, you complete VA Form 21-4502 and mail it to your regional office or work with an accredited representative. So that's really cool stuff, man. Hey, Willie! Hey, Wolf, what's going on, man? (laughs) So that's a lot of cool stuff, man, that you can... uh, We all know the VA will pay you for service-connected disabilities, but that they extend things is really cool, and it's a benefit you should definitely take advantage of if you can. Here's something being reported by the Military Times that is both good and bad. The DOD is scrutinizing the safety of its schools for military children. Defense officials are reviewing an assessment recently completed by DOD school officials of the physical security of all their schools for military children. Quote, We are looking at working with the services on how we can improve and what resources we can employ to prevent the unthinkable, said Tom Tom Brady. (laughs) Said Thomas Brady, director of the Department of Defense Education Activity, which has oversight over all 164 DODEA schools in the U.S. and overseas. The results of the physical assessment are in draft form in the hands of defense personnel officials, he said, and will be shared with military service officials. But the issue of arming teachers or others in the school hasn't surfaced in the Defense Department, Brady said. Quote, there is no discussion about arming teachers or any discussion I'm aware of where anyone has been interested in that. Okay, Thomas, yes, it is true that 100% disability ratings can travel space A uh, on military flights. However, this is, yes, rated by the VA. However, this is only for the service member. Right now, as it stands, uh, families of the disabled or caregivers of the disabled are not eligible. So this is currently being screamed at. To the the VSOs are currently screaming at the people in the VA, so they are working on it. But right now, it's only for people rated at 100% from either the DOD or the VA and not their dependents. Sucks, but that's what it is. Anyway, back to the story. The idea of arming and training school employees has been the subject of national debate following a rash of school shootings. Some school districts around the country have announced plans to do so. There have been a number of reviews in the past of the physical security and safety policies of DOD schools. Excuse me. Quote, it's one of the most important things we look at daily, said Brady. This this latest review was ordered about three months ago by the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, he said. Which, at the time, that would have been Robert Wilkie. 
Interesting. Although 99% of DODEA schools are located on gated military communities, that doesn't give us a false sense of security, said Brady. Quote, we have to, as school officials, work with local installation and garrison to understand procedures and policies and make sure we're working to exercise together so that we are in sync so we are in sync from a physical reaction point of view. There are contract security guards at a few DOD schools, those located outside the gates of an installation, he said, but the vast majority of DOD schools are located on military bases and don't have those security guards. Brady said that as an educator, he's concerned about the preventative aspects. Quote, What resources we can put in schools and work with the local medical facility to have counselors, mental health, identification of those students in need early before it goes to an absolutely horrible end, he said. So my effort is what resources can we put in for the preventative but I'm not losing sight of the importance of working with our service partners and physical security. Another priority is those schools on military installations that are not run by DOD, but are operated by local school districts. Brady said that DOD officials can share some of some best practices with those schools and districts about working with an installation and other officials to synchronize their efforts. Quote, we have some best practices that we can help with the services and the majority of the installations on the U.S. whose schools are on post but are part of the public school district. All that's moving forward, and it's obviously a very, very important priority to us, he said. There must be close partnership between the post, the schools, and with public, local public school officials so that policies, procedures, and processes are understood that jurisdiction is clear, and that force, reaction forces are in sync. Brady, a retired lieutenant army, uh, <laughs> lieutenant army colonel, retired army lieutenant colonel, was a former installation commander at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, with Fairfax County Public Schools located at the base. Okay. So that's the big debate going on these days, is about safety at schools. Some people say we should arm security have armed security guards. Some people say we need to arm teachers. It's a big brouhaha going back and forth. And in my personal opinion, I will be okay with increased police presence, and I will be okay with armed security guards. But And this is just me speaking. This is not connecting vests. This is not the military. This is me. I disagree with the prospect of arming teachers themselves because there will be – because there would be very little regulation as to how trained they are. Because let's face facts, people. When you're in a life or death situation, when a gun is whipped out and pointed at you, we all like to say exactly what we would do, but you never know. And so we can have teachers who say, oh, yes, I would absolutely run towards the fire, and I would return fire to protect my students. But in the heat of the moment, who's to say they're not going to be firing blindly and put other students at risk? We need trained personnel. That's my opinion. What's yours? Let me know in the comments. What do you think we should do to ensure school safeties in the era of school shootings? There are a lot of things we could do, but uh, we're not going to speak on them. <clears throat> All right. If you've been watching ConnectingVets.com recently, you will know that a couple, about a month ago, I took the Army's new physical fitness test. Hilarity ensued. I uh, did horrible at it, 
<laughs> in certain events because I'm fat and out of shape, but I'm working on it. I'm working on losing weight. But overall, I thought it was a good test. Well, here's a story being reported by the Army Times. Army National Guard soldiers are anxious over new PT test and gear shortfalls. I see the story. This is coming out of New Orleans. <clears throat> Equipment requirements, logistics, and training are on the minds of Army National Guard soldiers this year as the Army prepares to roll out a new gender and age-neutral fitness test. But while soldiers voice trepidation, the larger army says it's not going to be an issue. Quote, I think the test is going to be good, but my concern in the National Guard is the equipment requirement, said a battalion commander from the Louisiana National Guard during a discussion with Army Chief of Staff General Mark Milley at a National Guard Association of the United States conference in New Orleans this past weekend. Quote, there's a tremendous amount of equipment that's going to be needed at every company, every armory, and every detachment in order to administer the test and to train our troops. Have we addressed a plan to do that prior to the rollout? This uh, battalion commander asked. General Milley said the equipment concerns were not, an, were not just an issue for the Guard, but one across the force. <clears throat> However, the new Army combat fitness test correlates with much better to actual combat requirements and, quote, we'd all be negligent if we didn't train for this new test, said Millie. <clears throat> quote, in order to do it right, there's going to have to be a lot of training the trainers. It has to be phased in. We have to make sure the scoring standards are correct. And as you pointed out, it does require a little bit of equipment, Millie said. The ACFT field tests will begin in October and last one year. It will include 60 different types of battalions from all three components of the total force, Active Army, Army Guard, and Army Reserve. Additionally, Milley said, TRADOC, Training and Doctrine Command, is currently conducting an analysis of all the equipment required throughout the force, how much it will cost, and how to distribute the gear to the entire Army. Milley acknowledged that there will be some challenges. Quote, <clears throat> for example, uh, embassies. We have soldiers at embassies around the world, not in big units, but in small ones, but the equipment is an issue. The Guard will get the same equipment the rest of the Army gets. In the meantime, which will be the next year, you can train for it. This isn't rocket science, he said. For instance, grab a 10-pound medicine ball, throw it over your head. Every gym in America has a 10-pound medicine ball, he added. Similarly, he said, the hexagon deadlift bars needed for the test is available in the majority of gym sol gyms soldiers will run across. Quote, We're going to get you the equipment. It's going to be distributed to the force, but don't wait. I guess I'm stomping my feet. Do not wait, Millie said. The test is hard. <clears throat> Major General Max Haston, Tennessee's adjutant general, shared more on the equipment issue in an interview with Army Times. Quote, I'm really concerned about the new PT test, Hassan said. It will be an issue. Small town America doesn't have a Gold's Gym. Hassan said that the Tennessee National Guard draws soldiers from small communities where rural areas have often just one armory with only about 100 soldiers. The idea that disassociated soldiers at separate armories could drive up to collective locations to administer and train for a test doesn't solve the logistic issue. Quote, 
Now you've got the cost for transportation. You also just lost the day drill of training. Uh, we'll make it happen. But one of the best deals that ever hit for us was the three-event PT test because all you had to do were push-ups, sit-ups, and a two-mile run. I can do that anywhere. But this is going to create a logistical challenge. Stephanie Slater, a spokeswoman for the Center for Initial Military Training, told Army Times in a statement that the concerns are understood and being dealt with. Quote, the Army has several remote locations ac across all components to include more than 1,500 recruiting stations, overseas assignments, reserve and National Guard unit locations, fellowships, and training assignments that take soldiers far from normal military-based support, Slater said. There are seven National Guard battalions, seven Army Reserve units, and recruiting and ROTC units that were specifically chosen for the field test in order to evaluate and solve minor logistical challenges involved with remote locations. Additionally, training programs and equipment strategies are being developed in close coordination with all components. Additionally, Slater said, the Army will soon publish the ACFT training guide with exercises to help soldiers prepare to take the new test. Quote, these specific exercises will use common strength training methods found in current Army doctrine. So that is, <clears throat> that's one thing, I guess. But it comes to me, or it seems to me, that this has been a this is a thing the army isn't really planning for, because as the National Guard guy said, are you really? I mean, how long is it going to take? Because we all know that the National Guard pretty much gets active duties hand me downs. So how exactly are you going to ensure that all these units get the equipment they need in time for the rollout of the new test? It just seems to me an additional headache. Now, again. Having taken the test, I can tell you it's an excellent test to, to test for combat capability. But I don't think the Army has really thought this through. But again, that's just me. What do I know? I'm only a sergeant. Well, I mean, I'm not a sergeant anymore. So, But you know what I mean. That's the old saying. What do I know? I'm just an NCO. So... There's a lot of other cool stuff on ConnectingVets.com. Uh, five tips to keep your prescription medications safe or to keep you safe with prescription medications. Uh, there's a back on the block posted by uh, that says, this veteran is the poster child for the phrase, if you aren't networking, you're not working. And of course, on ConnectingVets.com, you can find so many other stories. Here's one that I'm going to read really quick. This is one I wrote. The Marine Corps officially bans revenge porn and racial supremacy. This is from me, and it goes like this. There are some things that one thing wouldn't need to be said. However, due to certain events in the last two years, the Marine Corps has finally put into words what we all thought was implicit. According to Military Times, the U.S. Marine Corps has <clears throat> recently updated and consolidated several regulations to add specific language banning both revenge porn, and participating in any form of racism, among other things. This comes on the heel of two specific events. Last year, the Facebook group called Marines United was found to be a place where Marines could share nude photos of female co-workers. This led to the investigation of nearly 500 Marines. More recently, 
Last month, a Marine was separated from the Corps due to his participation in the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia last year. You remember this? This is where all the Nazis and the Klansmen came out and there were counter-protesters and it got violent and someone was hit by a car and a big to-do. The order, officially known as Marine Corps Prohibited Activities and Conduct and Conduct Prevention and Response Policy, also condemns Marines who witness such activities and say or do nothing. Additionally, it lays out paths for Marines to report such activities and improve support for victims, addresses training and education for all Marines. So that's a story you can find on ConnectedVest.com. Also, this ticked me off. There's a poll on ConnectedVest.com, which you should totally go to and vote in, but it asks for what's the coolest military vehicle. And it lists the LATV, the M2 Bradley, the Humvee, the M88 Hercules recovery vehicle, but I ask... Where are the tanks? Where are the tanks? ConnectingVets.com. The tank, the M1A1, or M1A2, Brat Sep V2, Abrams fighting vehicle, is the single coolest vehicle in the military's arsenal. Anyway, go vote. Tell us what you think the coolest things, and check us out again on social media, at ConnectingVets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us. You'll know exactly when things pop up. Coming up. Uh, we are going to have Eric's interview with Lydia Watts from the Service Women's Action Network. And after that, Joe Chanelli from Ambet. Stick around. Lots of cool stuff. We shall return right after this. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan, and it's what we do. And I'll tell you why we do it. It's because each and every member of our team not only knows what it's like to have worn the uniform of our armed forces, we know what it's like to have taken it off that last time. Look at Jake and myself. 13 years in the Army for Jake. 13 years in the Navy for me. Each one of us had to go through the process of transitioning into the civilian world, and I think we've done okay. <laughs> Not perfect. Nobody is. But we are working tirelessly each and every day to get information to you that can benefit you as you go through that transition and as you maintain life following the military or as you prepare to leave the military. Of course, check the website every day, ConnectingVets.com, for the latest and greatest. And to be kept abreast of what we're doing and see the latest links going up live, follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is the chief executive officer of an organization that is doing important work for perhaps the most underserved segment of the military and veteran population. I'm speaking of the Service Women's Action Network, and their CEO, Lydia Watts, joins us now. Lydia, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I am well. How are you? I'm doing fairly well, thanks. Uh, the first question I want to ask is, for those out there who might be unfamiliar with SWAN, the Service Women's Action Network, somebody walks up to you on the street and says, Lydia, I understand you're the CEO of SWAN. What exactly does the organization do? What do you say to that person? Well, I would respond that SWAN's mission is to support, connect, and advocate for women in the military and that uh, past, present, and future. So that includes recruits, uh, folks in the military academies, active duty, reserve guard, and veterans. 
So the whole gamut, the whole spectrum of, of one's career in the military, we're there to advocate and support and connect uh, those service women. And we do that in a variety of different ways. Uh, we do a lot of advocacy uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, on we're, we're unique in that we both advocate on both sides, so on the DOD side and the VA side, so active duty and veteran. Uh, so we do a lot of advocacy directly with those agencies. Uh, we certainly engage with congressional members if, if there's a, a need to do so and to, to get improvements to, um, you know, whether it's uh, amendments to the CMJ or other issues regarding uh, benefits or access to health care, the whole, the whole gamut of issues that uh, folks in the military need addressed. We're there advocating for, as you noted in your open, uh, probably the most underrepresented and, and candidly misunderstood even by many in the veteran community, uh, women in the military. Uh, so that we do a lot of advocacy. We do a lot of outreach to the media. Uh, we've been working with Connecting Vets now for about a year, I think. Uh, and we, we also connect with you know, traditional print media, but also a whole gamut of uh, social media platforms. Again, to get the word out there about issues that may be impacting women in the military uh, and, um, you know, and certainly to comment on events that are happening in the national news that impact veterans and, again, how that specifically impacts women, uh, all, the, whole, the whole gamut of issues that, we, that you might want to hear about in the media, but also to let our members know about those issues and to translate what they might be hearing uh, to what that actually means to them tangibly. Um, we do. We are a membership organization. We have close to nine thousand members, and we have uh, close. We're we're about to approach thirty thousand social media followers. Uh, and then we also provide. Uh, we do direct research on issues that impact service women, and then we also have a variety of programs, um, including a, a, a about to be launched resource portal. Um, as I as you well know, there are many many organizations out there to serve uh, active duty and veteran folks, but um, many of them don't necessarily have the expertise or the sensitivity to address issues that are impacting women. So we've vetted organizations that are specifically serving those gender-specific issues, and we have a resource portal to be, for, for folks to be able to go on our website and access it set up by category. So if you're looking for assistance with, that, with employment, say, back into the civilian sector, uh, what are the organizations that really understand um, the employability of women and the unique skills that women bring to, to a workplace, both uh, with their uh, military experience, but also other, other uh, skills and talents that they may bring to the table. Uh, it could be around legal services. It could be around access to health care. So we have it all set up by category. And then the most exciting um, initiative at the moment is uh, the Military Women's Coalition, uh, which we'll be talking about in greater detail. But Swan has been the lead agency to bring that coalition together. It's a very interesting, fascinating, and I think fast-moving time for women serving in the military as well as women veterans. We've had a lot go on over just the last year. We have the first uh, Marine Corps infantry officer who happens to be a female. We have the first uh, Marine Corps amphibious assault officer. Uh, the first females going through ranger school recently in the Army. We've also seen some, some important things in the veteran community, including the VA uh, moving more towards providing the services that are required Required by our women veterans. They're certainly not where they need to be yet, but I think it's moving in the right direction. Overall, what would you say is the state of the women serving in uniform and those who have served in uniform nationally? Well, first, I want to say that the, you know, that the military service for the vast majority of our members um, is as 
is as it is for most veterans, an incredible opportunity um, and, and a very positive development in in women's lives. Um, so for you know, overwhelmingly people talk about their service as being you know not only an opportunity to gain skills and um, talents and enhance their talents and you know see the world and all of the things that the military uh, enables people to do, uh, but that also then sets them up uh, for uh, a civilian life and civilian uh, career opportunities that they may not have had access to otherwise. So certainly, you know, in that way, we, we always want to celebrate uh, how the military enhances women's lives. Um, saying that, you're absolutely right. There are some really great innovations and, and developments that have happened even in the last year. Um, SWAN has been very active on uh, the integration of women into those combat roles. Uh, we we still are working hard because there are still policies in place that make it difficult. So, you've, as you've noted, there's some great achievements in the, you know, even the last couple of months, um, and and women really integrating uh, those combat roles, and that's been an issue that Swan's been working on for a long time. Um, so, and as you mentioned, um, the VA is also. Um, has has certainly made improvements. Unfortunately, uh, just last week, the VA OIG, the Office of Inspector General, released a report that showed that uh, 49% of claims uh, made for PTSD survivors uh, that the PTSD is a result of a military sexual trauma were mishandled and just denied and not not given the proper process by the the VA uh, Benefits Administra- Administration. So. Um, that's very disappointing to see that. And of course, men are also survivors of MST, but um, you know that's been an issue that SWAN has been working on for a very long time to make sure that uh, not only does the VA recognize that PTSD as a result of that military sexual trauma is you know just as real and just as devastating as uh, a combat-related PTSD or some other uh, PTSD brought on by a different traumatic event, um, that certainly sexual assault needs to be treated with the same level of, of, of care. Um, and to, so to hear that 49% of, of cases just from a number of months, there was a, the OIG was just looking at a number of months in 2017. So we, you know, that's only a snapshot of of cases. Um, so you know, there's certainly definitely improvements that need to be made, and there have been congressional leaders um, calling for hearings on exactly why that has happened and what is the VA's intention to to rectify that problem and to process those claims that were um, handled inappropriately and and therefore erroneously denied. Um, so. Yeah, there's definitely room for improvement. We're we're also waiting for a new director to be appointed to the Center for Women Veterans. Um, Kayla Williams is, as you may know, moved on recently, um, and and of course Secretary Wilkie has just been appointed. So um, we, you know, we we recognize there's a number of things on his plate, but certainly we're we're hoping that a new director will be named uh, to head the Center for Women Veterans uh, very soon because that center has been uh, really integral uh, to the effort to get. To, for the VA to really do right by their women veterans. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, as you've noted, room for improvement. Um, there's, you know, a whole host of other advocacy issues that, um, that SWAN and other organizations that are part of this coalition are looking at, uh, including uh, retaliation against folks that have reported MST. Um, the most recent SAPRA report that was released in April uh, Showed that nearly 50% of folks that uh, report military sexual trauma also report having been retaliated against as a result of that report. Uh, so we certainly want want to address that issue and what's going on. Uh, why you know it's 
there's a mix and who is doing the retaliation. Um, and, and so that makes it a little complicated legally of what, what are the repercussions for that retaliation. But we certainly you know, want to learn more about what's going on and, and um, how the uh, command climate really needs to address address that uh, and make sure that retaliation is not in any way tolerated, uh, that, that when that it does happen, that uh, appropriate sanctions are made um, so that those brave folks that are coming forward and reporting uh, their sexual trauma are, are you know, not further harmed by doing so. We're speaking with Lydia Watts, the Chief Executive Officer of the Service Women's Action Network, a.k.a. SWAN, an organization that is uh, right there at the front of this new military women's coalition. So uh, what can you tell us about the coalition, where the idea came from, and what it's going to mean this upcoming meeting that you're going to have? Sure. Yes. Uh, thank you. I will, so the genesis of um, of certainly SWAN's um, desire to bring people together started in 2016. We did uh, some research of, of our members. We had about 1,200 people respond. Both, so membership for Swan is defined basically as somebody who is asked to be in in contact with Swan. So currently, our membership is free. People sign up on the website. I certainly encourage anyone to do so to to go to servicewomen.org. Um, it's very easy to sign up. Just Give us your name and email address. We do ask a few little statistics, you know, what branch, uh, where you are in your service, are you still active duty, are you veteran? And that's really just for us to gather demographics of our members uh, and then your email address. So this survey went out to the nearly 9,000 members that we have, uh, but it also we also disseminated it through other other mechanisms. So uh, we also had some non-members, but it was all women in the military and from all eras of service uh, and, and all, uh, you know, again, active duty and veteran. We had about 1,200 people respond. Going actually very uh, uh, um, echoed in your introduction of, of yourself and of uh, Jake of that transition to civilian life, what we heard from many, many people who responded to this uh, survey as well as candidly the genesis of SWAN, was women veterans um, really struggling with that transition. And when they went to some of the more traditional veteran serving organizations, uh, really felt uh, invisible that when they walked in the door as women, that they were quite literally looked at as, you know, are you here for your husband, uh, you know, your father, you know, you know, this is for veterans. So literally not seen as veterans, even by their fellow veterans. Um, so, what we hear over and over again, we hear that story over and over again, and what this survey showed was that um, actually for both active duty women who are stateside and uh, for veteran women, that such a desire to be able to connect with other women vets, connecting vets. So, <laughs> uh, And so we've been talking internally, how do we do that? We're, you know, we have four staff, uh, we're based in Washington, D.C., how do we connect veterans in Southern California to each other? How do we connect them to the resources they may need there on a local level or any other place across the country? You know, so we had been talking about, do we want to create chapters across the country where people could access those uh, local resources more easily and each other, building that community? Of course, that's very uh, resource and labor intensive to, to build those kinds of um, you know, chapters or, or, you know, certainly if you were going to do bricks and mortar lodges, very, very, very expensive, very uh, costly. So we couldn't figure out how to make that work. Uh, and so we started looking uh, on the internet, you know, how, who are the other organizations out there that are working with, uh, on issues of, of women in the military. And we found 
uh, over 160. Many of them were um, Facebook groups or uh, meetups or uh, military lean-in groups, but that they were specifically to connect uh, women in the military to other women in the military so that, you know, again, along your introduction to connecting vets, so that you're meeting with people who understand your experience, know the path that you've walked in, you know, walked in those shoes themselves and can really uh, give you that uh, helping hand in whatever issue it is, whether it's transitioning to civilian life, whether it's, um, you know, going through a divorce, uh, all of the things that, of course, civilians go through a divorce too, but, um, but, you know, all the issues that may be um, particularly challenging for, for folks in the military and, um, and trying to figure out how to, how, you know, what, what's out there to help me um, while I'm deploying and trying to figure out how to, you know, support my kids through this transition, those kinds of things. So as I said, we found about 160 of these organizations. The vast majority of them have no paid staff, um, and no budget. They're really just doing this uh, because you know they're passionate about connecting with other women in the military, and they want to provide that support. So we thought, well, okay, how can we help kind of rise the tides and lift all of these boats at the same time? Um, you know, we as an organization that's been around about almost 11 years, we have a lot of tools that we've already developed and you know mistakes we've already made in that journey of trying to support and connect veterans and active duty folks. So what can we provide as kind of a technical assistance provider, if you will, of providing, you know, reaching out to these groups and saying, here's some tools you could use, here's some best practices. And that was really the genesis of this coalition. So we brought together an advisory group of eight organizations. Um, in April of this year, we, we met at, uh, at the Women's Memorial over in Arlington Cemetery at Wimsa and had a great initial meeting and all eight organizations um, heartily agreed that bringing folks together across the country was going to benefit not only their individual groups, but all of the folks that we serve across the country. Uh, so that was our, our rallying call, and that advisory group has been meeting monthly ever since, uh, and all leading up to this inaugural meeting that will be a week from Friday, September 7th, in Atlanta, Georgia. And we have about 300 people registered to attend, a little slightly over 100 in person, another 200 to uh, to attend um, over live stream. Um, we're being hosted by the law firm of King and Spalding, so luckily we have their high tech gadgets there to be able to live stream the event, and uh, and that you know the video and audio quality will be of of uh, the highest caliber. And very exciting, we uh, just. Yesterday or the day before, the day before yesterday, just confirmed that Secretary Wilkie will be making the opening remarks uh, at this inaugural meeting. So he will be there in person um, to welcome everybody to to uh, to the meeting, um, and and hopefully we will hear from him his support to continue to uh, to support and work towards uh, rectifying some of the issues that women veterans have with the VA. Um, and so we very much look forward to, to hearing from Secretary Wilkie. Uh, and then it's a day-long agenda where we'll be working, uh, we'll be having some presenters over the course of the day talking about what a coalition is, why are we coming together, um, and, and then we'll have working groups in the afternoon to uh, build some of our, our working principles. How do we want to move? How do we want to work together? What does it mean to be a member of this coalition? Uh, so I mentioned there was 300 people. What I forgot to say is that those 300 people represent 70 organizations of that 160 that we found. 
Um, so almost half um, are, are actually able to travel to Atlanta to attend this meeting or to, to attend via live stream. Um, Swan did provide uh, 10 travel scholarships so that we at least could, for folks that couldn't afford to come to Atlanta and attend in person, that we um, were able to give 10 scholarships. And then Georgia MOA um, provided uh, one, one additional scholarship. So 11 people have received scholarships to attend. Um, and we've had very, very generous support from a number of, of sponsors, um, including Comcast, uh, Melward Veteran Services, uh, a few law firms, as we mentioned, King and Spalding, but also Steptoe and Johnson, Sidley Austin, um, Miss Veterans America came in with a very generous um, sponsorship. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. Oh, um, Women Veterans United Incorporated also came through with a sponsorship. So we've uh, there's really been a lot of excitement for this um, for this inaugural meeting, and you know we're really looking forward. Look, to doing the work, to rolling up our sleeves and, and talking together as a group and saying, okay, there's amazing energy around this idea and, you know, how, what, what are kind of our, our governing documents, if you will. You know, if we're going to go to the Hill and advocate, for example, um, testify at these hearings that are being called to, uh, that hopefully will be scheduled soon in regards to this VAOIG report that came out last week, um, you know, what does it mean for the coalition to be present at those hearings, you know, if you're a member who of the coalition who you know doesn't want to be associated with that effort, what does it mean to you know be able to decline or dissent? Um, all very important so that we are clear about the uh, the positions that the coalition can make, what the power of the coalition is, and you know how you as a member of the coalition um, also have your own individual voice uh, to be able to come to the table as well. So, um, so we're really, really excited to, to get this going, um, and we've been getting more and more support from from organizations with each passing day. I met with VDA earlier uh, this week, um, and they will be there in attendance. Um, and so, we're we're super excited to get um, you know to get the support of some of the larger VSOs. IAVA has expressed an interest in moving forward and and becoming involved in some way. Uh, so we're, you know, we're really excited that we're getting that kind of attention and, um, you know, and of course, BVA has been um, a champion of women veterans for, you know, decades. So right. to be able to have their wealth of experience um, at the table is, is hugely valuable. We're speaking with Lydia Watts, the CEO of Service Women's Action Network, a.k.a. SWAN. They're having the inaugural meeting of the Military Women's Coalition, with SWAN is heavily involved in coming up next week. And you just told us Secretary of the VA, Robert Wilkie, will be uh, delivering the opening remarks. It seems like a good sign that the new Secretary of the VA is showing up to this inaugural meeting of the coalition. Does that give you confidence that he will be, uh, at least to some extent, focused on the issues Facing women we, veterans, yeah, we we are very very optimistic that 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 that's what this um, this development shows. Um, you know, to be candid, I thought it was such a long shot that he would be able to come. And um, Dr. Ellen Herring, who is a retired captain from the, the Army, uh, she's been leading this effort on behalf of Swan. I think she's um, spoken on Connecting Vets about this um, meeting as well. Um, so when Ellen said, you know, let's let's invite Secretary Wilkie, I thought, you know, this guy's busy. <laughs> is he really going to come? Um, 
and thankfully he's he he's in Atlanta already that day because he's going to be um, I think it's the lunch the luncheon speaker for um, AWP's convention. Um, so the timing was perfect, and Ellen said, I, "I'm just going to I'm going to reach out and see if he'll come." This was literally a week ago. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really good sign that he accepted that invitation, particularly on such short notice, and that he's rearranged his schedule so that he can uh, to come over to King and Spalding and, and deliver those welcoming uh, remarks. So um, it, we certainly are. We're very um, pleased to see that his um, seeming commitment, uh, and we certainly hope that that um, that's an indicator of his commitment moving forward to to addressing uh, these some of these issues that, that continue to plague the VA regarding women veterans. Of course, you mentioned that there are going to be 300 people who are already registered. There are going to be those who are there live and those who are streaming it live. If there's an organization or an individual out there who's interested in in taking part in this, whether it's showing up live or, or streaming it live, is there a way that they can still do that or is it too late? Uh, no, they can still, uh, they could jump onto the live stream. Um, what they should do if they're interested is to email Ellen, D- Dr. Herring, and her email address is ellen at servicewomen.org so that they can get the link to uh, to be able to attend the via live stream. It is too late to register to attend in person. We did have, we, candidly, when we first planned this, we thought uh, 50 people show up, we'll be, you know, we'll be doing great. <laughs> so luckily, <laughs> luckily, the law firm um, was able to accommodate 100. But, at, um, you know, when we first went to them, we said, we think we'll, there'll be 50 people there. So, um, you know, this was a, a, this was a fast moving <laughs> um, changes to plan. So unfortunately, we, um, the law firm wasn't able to accommodate more than 100 in person. But we can take as many as possible via live stream. So email Dr. Herring um, and she'll get back to you with um, with how to how to log on to the live live stream. Um, and um, yeah, and we would the more the merrier. We would love to have not only um, you know people seeing what we're doing, but being able to contribute. Uh, we are asking that people who who um, attend that they be from organizations that primarily serve um, women veterans or have a long history like the VVA of of serving women veterans or active duty women. Um, so that's the one criteria just that um, you know certainly we know people will are interested in what what the developments are and we will be issuing a report after um, the inaugural meeting uh, that'll be coming out and you know it'll probably take us a, a month or so to get that out uh, but we will be sharing that and disseminating that widely so um, if if one's interest is really just to kind of hear what's going on um, but you know don't have that history of working with women in the military uh, we would ask that you wait to, to receive the report afterwards um, but otherwise the more the merrier We've been speaking with Lydia Watts, the CEO of the Service Women's Action Network, about what they're doing, including the upcoming inaugural meeting of the Military Women's Coalition next week down in Atlanta with VA Secretary Wilkie delivering the opening remarks. Lydia, I want to thank you so much for your time. And one more time, very quickly, if people are interested in finding out more about what SWAN does and maybe joining up as a SWAN member, where do they go and how do they do that? Yeah, we our website is the best way to sign up. It's servicewomen.org. So that's women plural dot org. Uh, we are also on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. So you can find us on any of those social media platforms and and follow us and like us there as well. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets.
Welcome back to the morning briefing here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingBets.com. Connecting bets every day. That's the slogan, and that's what we do. And I want to remind you, and I'm going to keep reminding you until you do it, check out the website, ConnectingBets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran-related. And make sure you follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingBets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us to get the latest and greatest information. You'll know exactly when things pop off in the veteran sphere. We stay on top of that stuff because we are the veteran sphere. Everyone here at ConnectingBets.com knows what it's like to serve and knows what it's like to transform to uh, not transfer to transition out of the military. I couldn't. I can't work today. I have the dumb. So yeah, we stay on top of that because it helps us. That helps you. It helps everybody. It's like that whole Lion King circle of life thing. Anyway, it's Thursday, and you know what that means. It's almost Friday, but more importantly, it means we are unfortunately forced to speak with Joe Schinelli of Anvets. I'm kidding, of course. Joe, how you doing today? Never better. How are you this morning, Jake? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. Now, a lot of stuff has gone on in the past week, and a lot of the news cycle has revolved around the death of Senator John McCain. And there has been an absolute outpouring of respect. Like, there was a statement put out by, you know, all the former presidents, uh, you know, both Democrat and Republican, uh, you know, allies like Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, adversaries like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, everyone's saying that regardless of what you thought of the man's politics, he was a good man, he was humble, and everyone really enjoyed his company. Except from one place, and that one place is rather notable, and that is the White House. So what can you tell us about this situation? Sure. So on Saturday evening, when we got word that Senator McCain had passed, um, it was not an unexpected death, of course. Uh, he's been suffering for quite a while now, and it's been a high-profile illness. Um, when, when he passed, we immediately looked to uh, to the the president, to the White House, to ensure that the proper respects. There's a lot of tradition here. Uh, a lot of uh, sitting senators have passed away in the past. Uh, a lot of you know, war heroes, and uh, you know, we most certainly believe he's a war hero. Five years uh, in. You know the worst of the worst prison camps in Vietnam. Um, you know, badly injured for, for the rest of his life um, because of you know he, the torture he endured there. Uh, he turned down the opportunity and offered of having an early release. Said, "I will not be released until every other service member who was captured before me uh, is released." And they kept him right there until the end of the war. Um, and so, you know, and a member of AMVETS too, I might add. Oh, really? and, and so we, you know, we immediately were hoping for the, the proper sign of respect. Um, and typically, when the White House, when someone of, of this, uh, you know, magnitude passes, the White House will issue a proclamation, ordering all flags on federal buildings, uh, and of course at the White House to half staff. Uh, we didn't find a, a pro- proclamation; nothing came out. So uh, I, honestly, uh, initially, I was already concerned, but then I uh, checked. The few people found that the flags had been lowered to half staff as appropriate, uh, just without the proclamation. And then Monday morning, we're all coming into into D.C. and plain as day, that flag is all the way at the top of the staff at the White House. And I immediately realized what was happening here. And the the president had made a decision, and you know his staff, I, um, however you want to say it, you know the buck has to stop with the president though. But the, the White House made the decision that they were not going to have that flag at half-staff for one minute longer than they legally were required. So technically, they followed the law, they followed the protocol. But uh, as far as we can see in modern history, every single sitting 
senator who passed while in office uh, had the flag lowered for them for at least four or five days and uh, really every, at least five days um, a few of them such as Ted Kennedy it was lowered for four days his funeral was a little bit later on so on on his funeral day they lowered it again um, so some quick initial phone calls over to protocol at the White House because we, we do work closely with this administration the administration is very cooperative and collaborative on this and so on on veterans issues so we reached out to them and they said you know absolutely we understand where you're coming from but the orders we have and what we're going to go with here is the flag is back to half our bag to back to full staff so our, our little think team over at AMVETS, we got together and said, you know, there's going to be some political backlash on this. And I said, but you know what? Political backlash can be damned because this is the right thing to do here. So we put out uh, a, a sharp-worded uh, letter, <laughs> to use a uh, past phrase. But So we put out a letter and basically said, you know, Mr. President, with all due respect to you, you need to show proper respect to Senator McCain. We understand you were political adversaries. We know we got really nasty, but we got to put politics aside here and honor the hero that Senator McCain is and, and was. And at about four fifteen, that we put that out just before eleven a.m. Did not hear anything back from the White House. Uh, the media picked up on it immediately, and then uh, a couple of the other uh, veterans organizations put out releases shortly after, including the American Legion, and it became a big news story quickly. And it was over politicized. There's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, immediately we started getting hate mail and we also started getting some really emotional thank yous. We're getting phone calls from um, people who had lost loved ones in Vietnam, um, just people who love our military, and they were thankful that we stepped up and spoke out. And then about 4.15 p.m., I got a call from somebody who was had been watching the White House and said they're lowering the flag to half-staff right now. So we were very thankful at that point that the president heard us loud and clear and decided to do the right thing, and you know we're not uh, we're not throwing any barbs at the president here anymore. You know we didn't think it was the right thing at first, but the important thing here, he did the right thing. He, the flag is now at half staff. Will remain so through this Sunday when um, when Senator McCain will be buried over by the Naval Academy in Annapolis. Uh, I'll be up at Capitol Hill tomorrow. He'll tomorrow Senator McCain will become the third third person in U.S. history to lie in state uh, at the Capitol Hill. So clearly, uh, as you said, the people on Capitol Hill realize, you know, what an amazing man Senator McCain was, 60 years of service, uh, including his military and his time in Congress. Uh, so significant. The, the country seems to really be, you know, coming together on this, but we're, we're still getting a lot of hate mail. And a lot of people saying, well, you should not have been disrespectful to the president, you know, or that – you know, Senator McCain voted with the Democrats or, you know, I'm a, saying I'm personally am a liberal. And funny thing is we had back when we did Please Stand, we had a ton of people telling me that I was, you know, an ultra conservative. So they <laughs> that's, <laughs> we make half the country mad at us. See, at that's the, the, the complicated thing here is that, like, there's so much vitriol being being thrown at John McCain right now. It, like people talk about, oh, he was a war criminal and he was a war hawk and he did this wrong, he did this wrong, and it's like I don't want to say it, but I'm gonna say it anyway. No one had a problem with him really until he went against Trump, and it's like this cult of personality that's raised around is just really disturbing. Like this man. 
like we said, there's rumors people throwing around like he started the forest all fire or he sold out his you know cellmates at Hanoi Hilton, and it's like these things that are factually untrue. And it all comes down to partisan politics, and it's really disgusting. And I, speaking personally, I agree with Ambes that I was a little disgusted at the way the president acted. And but it's good to see he did the right thing. Yeah, that's that's what's important here in the end. Um, you know, the this is the first time a sitting senator has died during President Trump's administration. So, you know, maybe he needed a, a little lesson on, on how to do this and. I'm not talking down to the president or the White House, and we work together, and we'll continue to work together. I'm quite sure we're going to have a meeting over the White House next week. So, and I think if the president was offended by what we said or thought we were wrong, he would say so. He's he's not shy about defending himself, and that's just fine with us. Um, you know, the the bottom line is we're going to speak up for on behalf of veterans, regardless of what party it is. We are not Republicans or Democrats. Sure, I. I vote in, in everything else, but as a private citizen, as someone away from AMVETS, but in my capacity at AMVETS, we do what's right for veterans, regardless of what party it is. And uh, so, you know, during the police stand stuff, uh, some of the legislation we supported, um, which was interesting, the McCain-Moran bill was really what the president ended up putting forward as the Mission Act, and he was very happy with that. And so we, you know, we've been very supportive of the president in the past, but we'll call him out when he is, isn't doing what he needs to do as well. So it is what it is, and we'll take the bumps and bruises as we go. Yeah, and that's important because, you, like you said, you work on behalf of veterans, and it's not just AMBETS, it's all the VSOs, really, that stay out of politics. And we here at ConnectingVets.com try to remain as apolitical as possible because the same thing. We work to serve veterans. But we all have our personal opinions. I have my personal opinions of the president as a person, but we're not going to get into that. And so the, it's a story that has, a, I would call, a bittersweet happy ending in that, yes, regardless of what the president may think and may have said in the past, he's doing the right thing. And that's what really matters. Absolutely. There's some of the irony here, too, by the way, for uh, Senator McCain and the veterans organizations, we have not seen eye to eye on a lot of things, especially on the reform of VA healthcare. Uh, Senator McCain was, for a long time, very much in favor of privatizing the VA. He led that fight. I remember him showing up to the conventions when he was a presidential candidate back in 08, I believe. Uh, he showed up at the, the uh, DAVs and legions and AMVETS national conventions, and he had a insurance card that he made up, a mock-up insurance card, and said, we're going to give, when I become president, we're going to give this to every veteran out there, and you'll be able to go anywhere you want instead of having to go to the dirty VA. And, <laughs> you know, the VA leadership, or I'm sorry, the VSO leadership was not happy with that whatsoever, but, so we had disagreements. But in the end, we knew that his overall service was certainly something that we should all be proud of and salute. Yeah, it's, it's the issue of civility in politics, and <laughs> especially in this day and age. And it really, it I think, in my opinion, it really started around the early you know, W. Bush era, when we started to get really hyper-politicized. I mean, it started under Bush, got worse under Obama, and now it's like, it's just taken to an extreme where people are losing their minds over things that really we need to be more focused. And, but again, that's just me. What do I know? So at least we don't have our vice president and the Speaker of the House dueling with pistols or anything. <laughs> yeah, that that is true. Our country's been around for a long time, but I would say uh, in modern history, our 
politics are as corrosive as they've ever been. Yep, and <laughs> it's sad, but I mean, hopefully things change, and all we can do really is, fo- is focus on veterans and try to just continue to get the supportive legislation through, and that's really all we can do. So, <clears throat> speaking of the White House... Uh, the White House just directed all federal agencies to begin actively countering the pro-marijuana movement. This is from the notes you sent me in an email sure. about what you want to talk about. Explain. Sure. So earlier this week, um, two days ago, a directive came from the president to all federal agencies, which, of course, as a federal agency, they all fund, fall under secretaries who are his cabinet members. And what this is saying is a, we have seen – a huge groundswell of support um, for legalizing the use of marijuana, whether it's for medicinal reasons or recreational reasons. And the administration is doubling down on its position and that they do not want that. And a few reasons this is noteworthy. One, we didn't know how the, the president or how the administration really felt because their messaging up to now has been, if the American people want marijuana to be legal, then get your elected lawmakers to change the law. Until then, we're going to enforce the law as it's written. And I understand that. And holding Congress accountable in that way is the right thing to do, in in our opinion. But we also believe, as an organization, we've passed resolutions a few times and just at our national convention um, earlier this month, we renewed our position that we believe veterans in states where – medicinal or marijuana is legal that the VA should be able to prescribe it. We know that won't happen. Well, federal law is still there, but we believe it should happen. Um, we also feel very strongly that VA doctors and providers should be allowed to speak with veterans about the, about use of marijuana, uh, especially where it's legal, but we think it should be something that should be allowed to be an open conversation anywhere because it helps the veteran and the veteran's going to consider it anyway. Um, so we've kind of gone around around the, the administration certainly knows our position and we're not the only organization with this is becoming as the, as this directive said, it's kind of becoming the widespread opinion. And we're seeing a lot of different opinion charts all over the country that say, Hey, you know, marijuana, maybe it's not that bad for you and we should be allowed to use it. And our overall um, position is that research should be done and it should be open to research and federal entities such as the VA should be allowed to conduct this research. Well, this directive doubles down says VA, you are not allowed to do any research. You're not allowed to talk about it. And we want all of our agencies to come up with messaging that counters this, this groundswell of support that's come out. So the federal government is going to now actively talk bad about, about the use of medicinal marijuana or recreational marijuana. So, I mean, the clash is coming. Uh, Congress, if, if Congress wants to, uh, you know, really uh, represent the will of the people, they need to take action now. Uh, so this will be something that we're going to look at as we go forward. Uh, you know, one of our um, primary goals is alternative, um, alternative uh, therapy and medications. And so this is something we, we feel strongly about that both the House and the Senate need to look at right away because uh, the administration has drawn the line in the sand now. Yeah, and we've talked before to several politicians, and I, I can't remember his name, so forgive me, but we talked to a Republican politician who's also a veteran about the issue of medicinal marijuana, and he basically came down to what I think is 
the you know a very fair opinion that is it should be an issue left to the states you know as far as legalization for recreational purposes or whatnot and he said he was in favor of the va doing research so this coming out it's to me it's kind of disheartening because as you said so many people are in favor of at least saying hey do the research to find out and i know a couple of months ago attorney general jeff sessions put out a message saying he was going to strictly enforce federal laws, even in states where it's legalized. And, but now hearing this coming from the administration, it's just, it, how do I put this? I'm trying to me again, I'm trying to remain apolitical. It feels like a political ploy. It feels like someone is trying, to, let's say it feels like the president is trying to rally his base, the ultra conservative tea party, you know, religious right type people who think oh marijuana is the devil's lettuce you know those kind of people and it's it's disheartening because this is this isn't about and again we've talked to all the vsos and this is not about hey man we just want to like enjoy and expand our consciousness man no this is this could have a legitimate medical purpose in helping american veterans cope with ptsd depression chronic pain and all these things and could directly affect the opioid crisis and he's just not and it's just not happening and it's very frustrating absolutely and i think at the very least it deserves federal funded research and this is going to put a put any of that the chances of that you know to, to rest here unfortunately and uh, you know, Congress needs to act. That, that's the bottom line. The Congress has, or I'm sorry, the president says he's committed to enforcing laws, and that's what the Constitution calls for him to do. Well, then Congress needs to change these laws and deregulate, and to give the give that choice to states the same way that states regulate tobacco and alcohol. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's like it always boggled my mind. Like the, the joke I tell is when people ask me, you know, oh, were you a bad kid? And when I said, when I was a kid, I did the one thing that was, I didn't do drugs. I didn't smoke weed. I didn't drink. I did the one thing that was the actual worst for me. I smoked cigarettes. So it's like, it, it never it always boggled my mind. Like, you know, cigarettes say, Hey, this kills 400,000, half a million people every year. Perfectly legal. But this thing that could have medicinal benefits that could help people, Oh, no. I saw a movie in the 30s called Reefer Madness that told me this is bad. I don't know. It is that on Netflix? My mind. What? Is that on Netflix? I'll have to find that I one. think it is, actually. <laughs> it really, if you've never watched Reefer Madness, it is hilarious uh, how much it's like people smoke weed and they start, you know, oh, one of the big things is, you know, oh, they, had, they, they lived in a house with three people and two of them were male, but a third, a third was a female. They lived in the same house together, and they regularly smoked marijuana cigarettes. Three's company. I know, right? It's <laughs> tragic. Cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. I always try to work in Ghostbusters at some point. Anyway, another topic, uh, toxic exposure. What can you tell me about this? This uh, about a B-52 bomber that crashed in the 60s. So 1966, um, just after Christmas, actually, just in the beginning of the year, a B-52 crashed uh, just off the coast of Spain. Um, so it was a B-52 and K K-135. They, they collided. And the crash itself, while well, it killed uh, several service members, the really significant thing here was that it spread radioactive plutonium over hundreds of acres. 
in in Spain. And so the federal government sent more troops in. They went in with 55-gallon barrels, and they took pretty much all the topsoil off hundreds of acres. Uh, and they brought those barrels back to South Carolina and buried them. Well, those who um, buried the, the barrels actually had protective gear in South Carolina. And still they had a much higher than normal rate of cancer and other related illnesses. And the federal government said, okay, we realize this is because of your exposure. But because of the way the laws were written and still are written, those who hit, took part in the cleanup in Spain, the American service members who, and they had no protective gear whatsoever, nothing. They were not part of this presumptive. So if, and they're experiencing cancer as well. As a matter of fact, most of them are, are, are dead now. And it's not just because this is from 50 years ago. Uh, most of them died pretty soon after. Um, I mean, really serious toxic exposure here. And so this is another one of these um, you know, delay, delay until they die type of thing, 50 years. And so finally, we're having a, a bill, uh, Senator Blumenthal, uh, who's um, one of the senior senators on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, has introduced a bill that we strongly support. Uh, toxic exposure in general is something that we're, we're paying a lot of attention to because it's, it's happened in a lot of different ways. And those who are being exposed now or have been exposed over the last 17 years, they need to be helped as well. And we're still running through a lot of those issues. But this one's pretty ridiculous and uh, very clear. And so the reason it's also newsworthy is because the VA has come out and said, uh, if we don't have any scientific evidence because we haven't taken the time to do research on this, to have scientific research, so if we just issue presumptives on these guys, it's going to send the set a bad precedent and it could eventually cause the VA to could eventually cause more people to claim toxic exposure the horror 50 years and they haven't done the research yet is what they're claiming and that's as much on DOD as it does on the VA and it's on our federal government in general and that's obviously over the course of a lot of different presidential administrations a lot of different chairmen of the different committees Uh, bottom line is this this should have been passed years ago and if it's not passed you know before this year it, it really is a crime um, but it's really important i think for all veterans to realize that there's been so many different cases of toxic exposure that our government has not taken care of um, and this is just another one of them and every time something like this happens we need to highlight it we need to remind the american people that there's been some serious sacrifices that have gone uncompensated and you know, the people who really deserve the compensation here are the survivors and so, you know, it's going to be costly once it goes through, but it needs to go through because it's very clear these people died because of their service to the United States. You know, this this is a pattern. I mean, it comes to this, Agent Orange, Blue Water Navy, burn pits. Why do you think the VA is so hesitant to issue these presumptions with, for toxic exposure? It, it's money. And, you know, in, in, in their defense, I guess, um, usually when the presumptives are, passed by Congress. They don't attach funding with it. So it becomes another big bill that the VA has to pay without more funding. So then the VA has to figure out how to do it because, you know, busting the budget's not really an option. Um, so, you know, Congress is as much to blame as the VA. Um, a lot of times DOD blocks records, things like that. And i will not shy about saying, I believe it's a, it's a coordinated effort by the, our federal government to delay these things. 
Yeah, and it's sad because, you know, like I did my part. I'm on the burn pit registry because of the things I was exposed to. And we're just now seeing positive movement on Blue Water Navy, you know, was this 50 years later, and this stuff is coming up. So it's just, it, it, it comes down to we need to keep up pressure. And we need to make sure the government knows that we're not going to just sit here and wait for people to die. We're going to continue to work. And we have great VSOs like and vets to do the work for us. And we thank you. And Joe, Joe if people want to learn more about what AMVETS is doing for them, where can they go? Yeah, please follow us. We're on all the social media platforms at AMVETS HQ. And, of course, we're online at AMVETS.org. Okay, Joe Chanelli, Executive Director of Ambest. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you, Jake. All right, you're listening to The Morning Briefing. We will return tomorrow with more great content, so make sure you tune in. I'm Jake Hughes. He's Joe Chanelli. You are awesome, and we'll see you tomorrow. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 